This is a bit of an unusual sermon. Uh, in the first place, we're, it's a little bit shorter since we have an instructed communion service going on. And uh, my original intent was to uh, focus in on this snippet from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 to 29, where Paul details the practice of what Christians call the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, sometimes called by some the Eucharist. Um, my original plan was just to focus on that, just a sermon, a short sermon on communion. But we're having this instructional service where we say, like, this is what we're doing and why we do it in church. Helpful for all of us. Uh, so Alex asked me to say a word about preaching, too. So I thought I'd just, like, mash them both together into a monstrosity for you all. Uh, so it might feel like a little bit of a dog's dinner this morning, but... Uh, I really do believe that these are two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're both forms of proclamation. Preaching and the Lord's Supper are both forms of proclamation. And it's not the things themselves, but it's what or who they proclaim that has the power to heal and transform and renew and restore us, not only in our deepest souls, but also in this world around us. So I want to say something about preaching and something about the Lord's Supper. First, preaching. Uh, why are we doing this whole sermon thing? Why is this pulpit, like, at the center piece of the church? Why are you all listening to me? <laughs> uh, the practice of preaching goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Christian movement. In Acts chapter 2, we find the early Christians devoting themselves to what they called the apostles' teaching. Now, you may remember that Jesus appointed uh, 12 men to kind of be the new Israel, the new 12 tribes, and they were to be, in a special way, his mathetes, uh, which is the Greek word meaning his disciples, or some people like to translate it, his apprentices. If you want to become a carpenter, the way that you become a carpenter is by studying under another a master carpenter. You become their apprentice. You work the wood in the way that they work it. You learn their techniques, their patterns, so that you can carry on the tradition and everything that they do. Um, and so it worked with these apprentices of Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They, uh, they listened to his teaching. They memorized his teaching. Um, they, they watched what he did. They recounted his miracles. They tried to imitate him, talk like him, walk like him, adopt his manner of life, of dress, everything. They were schooled under this guy for a three-year camping trip. Imagine if you went camping for, with someone for three years. You would start to act a lot like they would. You wouldn't smell so good either. Um, so, before Jesus ascended into heaven... He sent these 12 disciples out in an authoritative way to proclaim not only what he taught, right, uh, but also what he did and who he is. And they had this authoritative position along with a few others who were specially commissioned by the Lord to be called apostles, which means sent ones. So a disciple is an apprentice. An apostle is, an, is a sent one. Uh, these were a, this was a special group of people, once appointed, uh, who were the first generation appointed by the risen Lord to go and teach and convey the whole message onward. So from the get-go, we have Jesus' uh, commissioned apprentices passing on his teaching and his story and everything who he is to the rest of the commu Christian community. 
and of course, all of this eventually, uh, as these guys started to get older, they realized, oh, um, we don't want this to devolve into an endless game of telephone, right? Anybody ever played telephone before? Right? By the time you get to the end of the circle, no one, it, like the, traditional, the original message is just unrecognizable. Uh, I think the apostles knew that there's a tendency toward this, and so they wrote it down before they died. Thank, thank God. Um, and by the power of the Spirit, we have this apostolic teaching in the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, which, and also combine that with the prophetic witness, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and we have right here the apostolic teaching. We devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles just like the early church did. And this body of teaching, this message about Jesus, was called uh, the good news or the gospel. Awesome, you guys are good. Uh, and uh, as the early Christians devoted themselves to this message, uh, to everything about Jesus, uh, this gospel, they found the gospel to be this singular source of hope and healing and pardon for all people. It had the ability, they found, not only to heal the deepest recesses of uh, my problems in my soul, but also everyone else's. Uh, it was the source, the solution to the, the ills of society, the solution to the ills of our family Thanksgiving dinners, uh, the solution to all of the problems that we face. This was the key. And so that's why we take so much care uh, about teaching the gospel. It's because we believe that this message of the kingship and the radical grace of Jesus is actually our only hope. Uh, we, we got nothing else in the church. Uh, I'm, I'm not a psychologist or um, a sociologist. I don't have any sort of special insight about culture to offer. Um, you're not all listening to me because I'm wise. We are all together listening to the apostolic testimony to the gospel. That's what this is about. That's why we do preaching. And that's why we don't do like a guided meditation from up here. Uh, that's not why I'm not leading you all in a Zumba class right now. As interesting as that picture would be as I look out upon all of you. Uh, that's why uh, this isn't Ben's special time to sit up and share what he's written down in his diary this week or what, he's been, what I've been reflecting on. This isn't about me and it's not about you. Uh, my thoughts do not have the ability to free you from your sins. Uh, the testimony, the, the message of the Lord by the power of his spirit does. So uh, we're here to, to teach, or better put, we're here to preach or proclaim the gospel. Uh, I always wondered, what's that difference? Teaching or preaching? Why do we, you know, what, what is it? Uh, is it, is it that, like, I'm teaching when I use this voice, but when I use this voice, I'm preaching? <laughs> You're not getting much preaching if that's the case in this church. No, uh, the New Testament uses them somewhat interchangeably. Uh, they're different words, right? Uh, the, the word for teaching is didasco. The word for preaching is keruso. Uh, they're, they're different, but they, you hear teaching sometimes, but clearly the context is preaching and preaching sometimes, but it definitely involves teaching as well. How do I sort this out? 
Um, the basic idea is that of a town crier or herald, right? Uh, in the ancient days, I know we don't do this anymore, it just come, news comes by, via Twitter now or something like that. But uh, back in the day, you would have the herald who would walk into the center of town and they had a loud voice and they would say, hear ye, hear ye, let me declare this edict of the king. And, uh, and everyone would gather around and listen to the news that was announced. And then maybe, uh, maybe someone in the crowd would have a question, be like, what's an edict? And then the herald would have to like, explain it to them. So there's this declaring and explaining. It is teaching, but it's also bringing in a reality that changes everything. And that's key, right? Um, it's not the tone or style of preaching that makes it preaching. It's the substance. It's the content of the message. So if you're sitting in the waiting room and the doctor comes in after six hours and uh, you're waiting on your loved one and the doctor says, I have good news. Uh, they just restocked the snack machine back there. Uh, so avail yourself of the opportunity if you're hungry. Okay, that's information. Thank you for that. But that's not helping me. All you did was set my nerves off even more. But if she comes back to you and says, good news, it was a hard surgery, um, but he came through just fine. He's going to make it. That changes everything. Um, when we preach, uh, we believe that uh, we proclaim with the expectation and the belief that the Holy Spirit has the power to change anyone's heart in this room, including my own. Um, my experience has been somewhat like, in a good way, uh, throwing nitroglycerin into the crowd. Uh, some days I'm like, I'm about to light the world on fire, and I like throw a message out. I'm like, people are really, this is going to be a real game changer, and then nothing. <laughs> like, uh, you've experienced this too? It's like, you know, afterwards, you just feel like you just said the most radical thing ever, and people are like, good sermon, pastor. Have a nice week. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then other times, someone will come up and say, uh, what you said in subpoint C, section D of your sermon, uh, that you wrote and included at the last minute in a, in a haze at four o'clock in the morning, uh, happened to change my life. And I'm like, I don't even remember saying that. But here's the thing. It's because the word of God is living and active. That somehow through the mystery of our teaching the gospel to one another, and we do it in a formal way here, right? Alex and I spend probably uh, anywhere between 10 and 20 hours in a given week preparing uh, the sermons here. We study because uh, the people of this church are out doing the work of a ministry uh, in the world, and so they don't have time to do that. That's why I'm talking to you all, because I had the time this week. Um, and so the Spirit works in and through this and has the power to transform us. Um, but I found that, uh, I've heard it said that the 11-inch gap, or if you're like me, the 9-inch gap, uh, from the head to the heart is the longest journey that you'll ever take, right? And so um, often we can, it's one thing to believe something or to hear it in our heads, but to actually believe it is a different thing. And it's one thing to be told that you are welcome. It's another to actually sit at someone's table and eat. Um, and that's why the Lord has given us um, not just the word, 
but actually a sacrament, what Augustine called a visible word. Uh, We hear this message of the gospel through preaching, and then we taste, and we see it, and we even smell it sometimes through the Lord's Supper, both here and then also we get a little glimpse of it when we go to home groups, plug, join a home group. Um, I experienced this in a, in a different sphere uh, very powerfully. Uh, they say that um, the way, this is, sounds a little bit chauvinistic, but the way to a man's uh, heart is through his stomach. Um, at least for me, that is empirically true. Um, I went on a, a date with this uh, girl named Jenna Klom, who's now sitting in the front pew as my wife, holding my baby. And um, at the end of the date, you know, I knew she liked me, and she knew I liked her, but she baked this apple bread. And let me tell you what, I lit into that apple bread, and the deal was done, man. It was over. I was gone. I was looking at wedding venues. like It affected me in a way that, that simple words could not. And so Jesus gave us a meal. Um, and invites us to taste and see the gospel. That's strange words. But uh, I want to focus in on 1 Corinthians 11 really briefly and show you what I mean. Uh, verse 23, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Paul tells the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Notice he's passing, he's transmitting a tradition here. I received it, now I'm passing it on to you, this tradition, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed took bread, probably wasn't apple bread, it's like unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. We read the same thing in Matthew 26, uh, that Jesus, who was knowing that he was about to die, he shares a meal with his students, and it's not just any meal, this is a Passover meal. Uh, The Passover meal was, and still is, a symbolic reenactment of the exodus when God delivered his people out of slavery. That's what's going on here. And uh, the host would often explain the significance of things at the Passover meal. So Jesus is sitting with his, rep- with his apprentices at the table, or probably reclining and leaning against it. That's how they ate back then. Uh, probably in a U formation with Jesus, the host at the center. And following the custom, Jesus gives thanks breaks the unleavened bread, and then explains the significance. And here's what he was supposed to say in the liturgy. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt, the, land, the house of slavery. That's what the bread is supposed to symbolize. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He rewrites the script and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, in other words, break bread in remembrance of me. That's a loaded statement. He's saying, one, I'm going to die. My body will be broken. Uh, And then two, the breaking of my body, my physicality, is somehow going to be a gift that is for you. I'm, I'm going to die in a way that that somehow nourishes and feeds you, just like the bread that the, that the Israelites ate on their way out of Egypt nourished and fed them. So just as you eat the bread right now, to remember the Exodus, when I'm gone, I want you to break bread to remember me and to draw your minds to the reality of my nourishment of you. 
one thing he's saying in, there, in here is, I am the new exodus. I'm the way out of your sins. Uh, you may feel that you are locked inside of your own self and someone has thrown away the key. But in fact, uh, I am your exodus. I am the way out. Um, now, side note, he's speaking metaphorically about the bread here because uh, he, the bread is not his body because his body is holding the bread. And then he ascended to the Father and his body is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Um, just making that clear. Verse 25 then, he t in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant, strange wording, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here again, we have Jesus predicting his own death and saying that his blood, the, his, uh, the thing that brings him life is going to be the new covenant, the new promise, the new uh, relationship. F loaded phrase, right? The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a day uh, back hundreds of years before the time of Jesus when God would make a new covenant, a new pledge, a new relationship with his people. And that new relationship, unlike the other one, was going to be characterized by intimacy, by righteousness, and ultimately by grace. Uh, he says this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So at supper, Jesus tells his disciples that through his own bloodshed, their, through his own violent death, their sins are forgiven, and their relationship with God is renewed and expanded. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we aren't eating a magic cracker that will somehow infuse grace into us. Uh, that, that's, ma that's a magical idea. That's a superstitious idea. What we're doing is fellowshipping in the deepest way with Jesus, um, who, who has imparted his grace upon us firmly, once and for all, upon the cross. On the other hand, we're not just per performing some empty ritual. Um, these things are, in the words of our 39 articles, the Anglican 39 articles, they're effectual signs of grace. These are visible words that proclaim that your sins are forgiven, you were bought with a price, and you belong to Jesus. So I want to end really briefly with a, a poem um, this might be my favorite poem. By, it's by a man named George Herbert. He lived long ago, and he envisions uh, being drawn, uh, invited into dinner by Jesus, who he calls love. And um, he says, Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. So he, he comes in at the door, but he's so ashamed of himself that he can't even dare to look the host in the eye. He can't bring himself to sit down. I don't know if you've ever felt like that walking into a church. I don't deserve to be here. I'm a hypocrite. I'm the kind of person that they say church is not for. Um, but quick-eyed love, remember this is Jesus, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. How does love respond? He says, no, 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 come here. I pull away, he draws nearer. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. That's what I lack. 
Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. You can't even look him in the face. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made those eyes but I? Truth, Lord, he says, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And love says, and know you not who bore the blame? My dear, then, then I'll serve. Let me just be, I'll just be a servant. That's the best I can hope for. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. May it be so for us. Amen.